Toronto, Canada. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Welcome to the Audio Imaginarium. Come on in, weary traveler, hang your cloak on a peg, grab a stool, and come gather around the fire. There are stories to be told, and you are among friends. Happy New Year. Author Matt Swain is here with a, another collection of ghost stories. He's here for the full two hours, and this time he's focusing on World War II. Matt is a journalist who currently works as a research writer at Penn State. He's worked as a reporter and as a music reviewer for several newspapers and online outlets. He's a regular contributor to the recently revitalized version of Omni Magazine called Omni Reboot. He writes the Antimatter column, which looks at fringe science and the paranormal. Previous books include Haunted Rock and Roll, More Haunted Rock and Roll, Ghosts of Country Music, and America's Haunted Universities. And his latest is Haunted World War II, Soldier Spirits, Ghost Planes, and Strange Synchronicities. Matt Swain, welcome to The Conspiracy Show. How are you, my friend? I'm doing well. Thanks for having me. Did you have uh, a grandfather or relatives that, that fought in the Second World War? I did. Neither of my grandfathers fought in the war. My one grandfather was uh, worked in the railroad, so he was considered uh, too important in that job. I'm not sure about my other grandfather, but my uncles were all in the war. I had an uncle in the Battle of the Bulge. I had an uncle uh, in the Pacific. So, uh, I mean, it was uh, there was a lot of World War II talk, and of course, I was right there listening with every uh, every breath they took. And and how, because you've written about haunted universities and and haunted rock and roll, two volumes, uh, ghost stories from, uh, from the country music. Mm-hmm. How do you approach a, a book about ghost stories from the Second World War differently, or do you approach it differently? That's That's a really good question. And to be honest with you, Initially, I approached it the way I approach my, uh, because I'm interested in, in music history, I approached the book on World War II just as I approached, uh, the books on, uh, haunted rock and roll and, and country music ghosts, which is I try to find as many stories as possible. Uh, I try to, uh, put, cast out as wide a web as possible and find, you know, any type of interesting stories, weird synchronicities, anything like that. But what I quickly discovered with with my efforts to create uh, these stories in World War II is that uh, the stories are a lot uh, more uh, – they're, they're much heavier, much, much – a lot more death and destruction. Uh, you have a lot of um, – you know, these soldiers who sacrificed their lives. So when I got into this real quickly, I decided that I, I couldn't have the same approach with the haunted rock and roll stories. And haunted rock and roll stories for me can be a little fun, a little frivolous. I mean, they're not all fun and games, not all jokes. But, you know, when you're doing a story about Jim Morrison haunting a bathroom in a Mexican restaurant, it's a heck of a lot different than approaching uh, the ghosts of some of these soldiers who uh, sacrificed their lives on the beaches of Normandy or some of these Japanese soldiers uh, in uh, the Pacific or even some of the really uh, poignant stories that, that came from Okinawa and Iwo Jima. So it very quickly changed for me and became much more serious and, like I said, a lot a lot heavier. Right. Yeah, you have to honor that sacrifice. So Absolutely. So, yes, obviously um, 
you have to handle it with a, a great deal of reverence. Many books have been written about haunted Civil War battlefields. That's pretty, you know, that territory has been combed over pretty thoroughly. So what then led you to the Second World War? Was it just because you were familiar <clears throat> as a child with, with through your uncles, or were, was there something in particular about the Second World War that attracted you? Yeah, and I'll be quite honest about this, is I started to collect stories about the American Civil War, uh, to do a, a ghost stories about the Civil War, because I'm, I'm more of a Civil War buff than uh, a World War II buff. Uh, but very quickly, I've, I discovered that, that the territory has been so well covered, and, and I didn't really think I could add any more stories to it or even add any angles, fresh angles to the stories that are already out there. So uh, I really just fell back on, you know, those stories that I, you know, grew up with as a kid, uh, and I, I – do enjoy reading about World War II. Uh, I had uh, several classes in military history, and we we covered uh, World War II uh, pretty well in that. So I had that that basic interest. What happened though was when I started collecting stories, I started to realize that there's quite a difference between the American Civil War ghost stories and these stories of World War II. And the first is is probably obvious is that. They stretch across the globe. Uh, so World War II is really the first all-out global conflict, although it, it kind of gets second billing next to World War I. But you have stories uh, that stretch into the Pacific, uh, into Russia, into Europe, and even some uh, stories that appear right here in the United States uh, – in, a, in an odd kind of way. So th- it was a really global conflict. And the other difference that I noticed between the American Civil War ghost stories and World War II ghost stories is that there is actually a third dimension now. So in the Civil War, you didn't have planes. In World War II, you have planes. So this added a few more dimensions to uh, the book that I wrote because there's uh, a lot of stories about ghost planes, which are not ghosts haunted by pilots, but the the plane itself is is a, is a ghost. So there's that. There's also these uh, Foo Fighters that I I uh, brought into this volume, uh, as well as some mysterious um, uh, air bases that are that are haunted, and some uh, actual ghosts who do haunt haunt some of the planes in those displays at the museum. So it really turned into a much broader kind of uh, volume than I probably would have experienced had I just stuck with the, the Civil War stories. Sure, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a big canvas. Um, how do you collect stories like this? Because uh, not many World War II vets around anymore. Every year, fewer and fewer. Right, right. And that's, uh, that's a, a really a sad thing about this. And, and I think it kind of underscores why I felt – uh, the need to do this as well is because a lot of these stories are starting to disappear. And one of the things that I learned while writing the, the book about university ghost stories is that ghost stories help preserve history. I mean, they're not great at, at telling all the stories of, of uh, a historical event, but they do give you the interest to dive into it. And they introduce you to some of the characters and some of the events. Uh, so, 
you know, one of the ways that I start looking for it is really uh, going back on my own study of the war itself. So I'm thinking about key figures, key battles, and then I go on a search through – uh, start out on the web, but I'll look in biographies, I'll look in uh, newspaper accounts, magazine accounts, a lot of web accounts, people will tell their stories there. So a lot of the ghost stories that I find are people who have experienced these ghosts as tourists uh, overseas uh, and, uh, you know, some other places like in magazines, they'll talk about this. The ghost stories of the vets themselves, I, I don't really have a lot of them in, in this volume. What about your uncles? Did they ever have any uh, ghost stories or strange synchronicities or anything? Odd occurrences? That's a, that's, that's a, a great question. And I, I can't remember anything like that i just remember vividly the story that my uncle was uh was a radio man in the battle of the bulge and got stuck behind the lines uh, as the germans poured through and i don't know whether he was supposed to be behind the lines or he just got stuck there but he uh recounted wearing all white and being buried in the snow and he heard german voices come across so I've I've had stories like that, but I can't say that I've had any. Uh, they never told me any of the ghost stories. You know, we just passed the seventy seventh anniversary of Pearl Harbor, and um, mm-hmm. you, you know, as you say, it, it's a, it's a day that lives in infamy, but it's a day that that lives on in many other ways, as you suggest. Tell us a little bit about the uh, some of the supernatural activity uh, around Pearl Harbor. Both the naval base, I guess, and the, and the airfields and so forth. Sure, uh, I, I would have to say that you know, again, this is this is sacred ground, but it's also uh, haunted ground. And you know, this is another story that is on American soil in in Hawaii. And what I found is that Pearl Harbor is probably just as it's probably one of the most sacred sites for for historians and and for people who honor and respect the veterans who gave their lives there it it's also one of the most haunted spots uh, paranormally speaking and the the ghost stories range from one of the ones that i i recall is that uh the some of the some of the phenomena is actually like you can take pictures of and uh in one case a, a tourist uh, a woman was taking pictures of the area around the Arizona m- memorial where the USS Arizona sunk and when she took the picture she didn't really see any ghosts or anything like that but when she analyzed uh the film uh she could see faces in the water itself and they look like the faces of young sailors. So that's some of the phenomena that you have there. But you also have stories that uh, kind of mix in with what I would call ghost lore uh, around the area, too. And this one also takes place in uh, the USS Arizona. And the backstory to this one is that uh, during right before the attack on Pearl Harbor, right before um, the Japanese attacked, there was a sailor who was on watch on the USS Arizona, and he left the ship briefly during watch, which is a no-no. Uh, and seconds later, as he started returning to the ship, he saw that it gets it, he saw that it was attacked. And so there's stories now that um, 
people see a figure of a lone sailor looking out onto the memorial, and he, he is usually kind of misty and kind of encompassed in mist. So that's another story there. And as you point out, that the area around uh, Pearl Harbor wasn't the only target for the attack. There were several air bases and several army bases around the base that that were attacked as well. And this has led to a lot of ghost stories that you'll find in the Schoenfeld Barracks and Hickam Air Base. And some of those uh, range, again, from people seeing uh, – ghostly figures to uh in in one case one of the barracks was used as a morgue and uh people usually around uh, late at night will hear usually the, it's the guards who are on duty in that building they'll hear what sounds like a, the steps um starting to shake and then they'll hear rumbles coming down the steps and then some people have even said that the the staircase itself starts to uh, t- starts to shake and, and buckle, almost like more and more people are coming down the steps. And the interesting thing there is the, is the story that I got was really from a guard who, who worked, worked there. And he noticed that at the time that he was there, the CQ desk, which is where the, the guards usually sit, is typically indoors in the building itself. But for some reason, this was pushed out. And according to him, it was pushed out because of all this this ghostly activity. There's also stories about this the same building. Uh, it, it starts to smell like corpses, probably relating back to its use as a morgue during the attack. Wow. When you collect these stories, you know, if we're talking about the Eastern Front, obviously you're dealing with Russians, or if you're in the Pacific Theater, you're dealing with uh, the Japanese or maybe mm-hmm. even uh, the Chinese culture. Do they tell ghost stories differently? Is there any difference in the way different cultures approach a ghost story? Interesting. You know, I I will say that the Japanese, the stories that involve the Japanese feel very much like their tradition of ancestor worship. And they also uh, seem to be centered on going back home. And again, you know, as I was mentioned earlier, these Stories are so poignant, and there's there's one about uh, in particular about a uh, I, I think he's a Japanese military contractor who lives in Iwo Jima. Before he goes to uh, Japan, he shuttles back and forth from Iwo Jima to Japan. He tends to get a knock late at night, and what he does is he opens up the door and says, "I'm leaving tomorrow." Come on with me because he believes that these Japanese soldiers, these are ghosts of Japanese soldiers who were either uh, committed suicide on the island or who were buried and burned alive in some of the uh, caves in on that island. And he believes that they want to go back to Japan. So there are elements of that, that that yearning to return home. Uh, and I think it's a connection with uh, the Japanese Shinto religion, which does have an element of of ancestor worship in it. What's the most bizarre ghost story you write about in your book? I would say the the most bizarre story that I found, uh, and again, you know, I'm trying to think about key terms when I'm approaching these stories. So the one uh, the one person I really wanted to uh, look for is whether any of the German generals were haunting any of the battlefields, like Rommel. So during my search for Rommel, I was searching for ghost stories about him. I expected him to be 
you know, maybe there might be some in North Africa or there might be some um, on the Atlantic seawall, which he was uh, the mastermind in, in the German defenses there. But I actually found him in the American South in West Virginia. There's a ghost story uh, that revolves around this mysterious story that between the wars, after World War One and before World War Two, there was allegedly a secret mission where the German generals came to the United States to tour Civil War battlefields, in particular the Shenandoah Valley where uh, Stonewall Jackson was so um, – so uh, masterful in some of his campaigns. And so there's one story of an inn that's haunted by Rommel, or they believe it's uh, haunted by Rommel because he allegedly stayed there. And then there's a uh, graveyard where uh, some people have seen this uh, figure standing over the graves of some of the Confederate war dead, uh, and it looks like he's dressed in a German uniform with a, a long trench coat. And, and, you know, the distinctive kind of headgear that the German, uh, field marshal used to, to, uh, to wear. So that, that was one of the weirdest ones because I wasn't expecting to find him in the United States at all. Uh, but also I got a chance to write about the Civil War, which, uh, made me happy as well. Now, I mean, is, is there a history of Rommel being in the United States before the war? Well, that's, the real debate that goes on even today, and I try to share both sides of it, there's really no historical evidence that that happened whatsoever. But the believers in this story counter, well, if it was a secret mission, why would there be any type of, um, of uh, you know, airplane tickets or anything like that of course they wouldn't have uh, wouldn't have done that so that that debate still still rages uh, i could not find a shred of evidence to suggest that that he was here even in his diaries or memoirs there were no mentions so uh it's uh it's still up for debate what about Patton? Because everything I know about Patton is based on George C. Scott's portrayal in that epic movie. Uh, but based on that, I mean, he certainly was he believed in reincarnation, that he had, he had participated in, you know, Roman battles and, and uh, fought with the ancient Greeks and so forth. Fascinating historical figure. So surely someone must have seen Patton's ghost. Well, yeah, and there's... Uh the, the story that stands out about uh, Patton for me and is one of the reasons why I tried to find his ghost stories is that he claimed to have a vision on the battlefield of seeing his ancestors uh, who were Confederate uh, heroes urging him on when he was injured during World War One And, and uh, uh, you know, they, he, he claimed that they kind of watched over him. With, with Patton himself, now he died um, shortly after uh, uh, he was involved in a, in a Jeep crash. Now, both of his daughters claimed that Patton, the ghost of Patton, either appeared to them or called, believe it or not, called uh, them. Uh, one daughter said that she got a long-distance call, a, a transatlantic call, and she used to receive those quite often from her father. Um, but this was different because uh, he could hear – she could hear his voice and communicated with him briefly, and then it cut off. And so she immediately tried to reconnect with the operator, and the operator said that there was no no call. 
the other daughter claimed that she woke up uh, late at night, early in the morning, uh, and she saw her father at the foot of her, her bed. Uh, and I think he, he said some pleasantries to her and, and asked how she was and then disappeared. And that was on the same, at the same moment that, uh, he was dying of his injuries in a military hospital. Fascinating. Um, the, uh, the idea that this is a, a debate that sort of rages in the, in the paranormal community and, there's the one camp that believes that that uh, ghosts actually have consciousness and that you can't communicate with them. Uh, and then there is sort of the other camp uh, that believes that that ghosts are um, just sort of an an, an echo uh, of emotion. Or uh, you know, obviously in in war, there's a lot of trauma and 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 violence and so forth. And somehow that emotion becomes embedded. Mm-hmm. Uh, in in the surrounding uh, in, in buildings and so forth, w- where do you land in, in in this debate? I I land way outside of that actually, and uh, you know I I do see in collecting this volume that there are instances which I would I would classify the phenomena more as that echo, uh, especially you know when I talk about. The, the ghosts in the Eastern Front, they seem to be echoes of long past. Uh, and, and then there are other ones where they're interactive. This, you know, ghost of George Patton talking to his daughters in whatever means or manner he can. So that seems very interactive. But over, I, I think this is my fifth volume that I've written, I'm starting to move more towards the idea about uh, consciousness being involved in this in, in one way or the other. Uh, when I talk about music ghosts, I think there's a consciousness raising, uh, activity involved in either playing music or listening to music that, uh, raises one's consciousness where you're at least, at the very least, open to some of these spiritual, uh, activities. So that that's one thing. And in war, I think it's the trauma. And I think when you're in an area, when you're in a battlefield, you are uh, kind of your consciousness is is ready and uh, for these experiences. So a lot of times I wonder whether the ghost to me, these ghost stories are more about us, the living, than they are about the dead. Uh, I think they those are the lessons that they are are inspiring is, is really coming from us. So as I go through this, I, I'm starting more and more to see almost like a bigger picture rather than just these, well, what type of spirits are they? It's like, I always want to say, well, well, what are they telling you rather than, you know, what are they? All right. Fascinating. Matt, stay with us. We'll come back and continue to delve into haunted World War II. Matt Swain, my guest, right here on The Conspiracy Show. Stay with us. Where there's smoke, there's The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Mr. Vice President, Mr. Speaker, members of the Senate, of the House of Representatives, yesterday, December 7th, 
1941, a date which will live in infamy. The United States of America was suddenly and deliberately attacked by naval and air forces of the Empire of Japan. Matt Swain stays with us, and we are discovering the paranormal legacy of the Second World War. And in his book, Haunted World War II, we'll uh, encounter dozens of phenomena in the European and Pacific theaters, as well as historic locations in the U.S., where the spirits of the dead are unable, I guess, or unwilling to let the past go. Uh, for example, the ghost of an admiral gives a tour of the USS Lexington, a tourist at Dieppe are haunted by the terrifying sounds of uh, battle. A full-body apparition appears at Schofield Barracks. Uh, ghost tanks are witnessed patrolling the Russian front. Phantom footsteps shock the guards at Hickam Air Force Base. Uh, ghostly soldiers knock on doors at Iwo Jima. A spirit sailor keeps eternal watch at Pearl Harbor. Uh, Matt's book also shares fascinating stories of supernatural warfare. We're going to learn about wizards and witches in England casting spells to hold the Germans at bay. Uh, Dion Fortune and the uh, the Fraternity of the Inner Light uh, working magic in support of the Allies. And Aleister Crowley waging a psychic campaign to capture high-ranking Nazi Rudolf Hess. Haunted World War II. Uh, explores the high strangeness and haunted aftermath of the most devastating clash of nations in living history. Fascinating. Yes, that's a great point. Keeping along with the uh, sort of the famous ghosts, and we talked about Patton, uh, you talked about Rommel. What about Ike, Ike Eisenhower, the great general during the war? Yeah, Ike actually appears in a couple different um, ghost stories in my book. Um, the one is is in the United States, and... Um, I'm writing a volume on railroad ghosts, so that one appears in this one as well. But the National Railroad Museum in, in Green Bay, Wisconsin, they have on display um, a, a car that he used in England. It would ferry him around from place to place right before the, the lead-up to the invasion of Normandy. And there are a few things that have happened there um, – Notably, one of the volunteers was cleaning up uh, and vacuuming the floor, the carpet in this car that I, I think it's called the Bullet or um, it has a, has a name like that because he uh, used it to go across so fast, uh, across England so fast. But uh, so this volunteer was cleaning up uh, and then decided to take a break about halfway through when he came back, the vacuum cleaner was all, you know, rolled up and moved, and he noticed that the the carpet was was uh, immaculately uh, vacuumed, and the lines were all straight. And so he went around and asked people who had access, because he had locked up the car on his way to break. You know, he asked them, you know, who 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 was there at night, or or who was there during the break. And uh, no one claimed it was them, but one thing he found out later was that Ike was very meticulous cleaner and that he insisted that these lines in the, in the vacuum, uh, when they would vacuum, would be very straight. So it sounded like something the ghost of Ike would do. Uh, also in Gettysburg, his, there's a farmhouse that both Ike and, and Mamie are allegedly uh, uh, haunting. And so there are a lot of stories that, that have come cropped up around that too. 
you just can't get away from the Civil War. <laughs> no, I know, I know. <laughs> it wants that book to be written somehow. <laughs> Somebody wants it to be written. Right. Uh, we'll take a quick time out. We'll come back. Matt Swain, Haunted World War II, right here on The Conspiracy Show. Listening to the Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. We're back with Matt Swain and his newest book, Haunted World War II: Soldier Spirits, Ghost Planes, and Strange Synchronicities. Um, we we're talking about famous ghosts. We talked about Ike. We've got to talk about Churchill. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Winston Churchill. He has the honor, in my book at least, of both seeing a ghost and being a ghost. So his adventures in uh, seeing a ghost occurred in the United States. He was a frequent guest at the White House and would would stay in in uh, what's called uh, uh, now called the Lincoln's bedroom. I don't know whether it was called that at that point or not. But in any event, he was there one evening. Um, he was uh, in meetings with uh, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, and he had just finished up with his his uh, bath and I really hate to take your listeners there, but he <laughs> got out of the bathroom uh, uh, completely naked and walked into the bedroom and he looks by the dresser and there's a, the ghost of Abraham Lincoln. Churchill said that uh, the ghost looked at him and uh, he replied in, in complete Churchill fashion, uh, Mr. President, you've caught me at a disadvantage, and then the president <laughs> faded away. So th- he apparently told that story. Um, the other story is that there is a subway in, in the UK that allegedly is haunted by uh, Churchill. And according to a lot of stories, um, Churchill would, <clears throat> excuse me, Churchill would use this uh, subway as a, a kind of a shelter during the uh, the bombing of London during the Blitz and and during other times, and a few people have ex- have seen the ghost of Churchill in this area, and there was actually a, a flurry of activity a few years ago when um, a cameraman down there actually has footage of what looks like the ghost of Churchill. Fascinating. He lived to a ripe old age. I think he died. Um, I think he was ninety. Yeah. In, in the mid nineteen sixties, as I recall. Right, and and still working up till the end. I love that story about um, the White House and seeing the ghost of Abraham Lincoln. Stoic as always. That's classic mm-hmm. Churchill. Mr. President, you've caught me at disadvantage. <laughs> right. <laughs> Where most of us would just run around <laughs> screaming. Yeah. Yeah, I definitely would have. Um, ghost planes and uh, and haunted airfields. That's a section two in Haunted World War Two. Uh, let's talk about the Phantom Flying Fortress. The Phantom Flying Fortress is, uh, I, I think you're referring to the one that, uh, the, the crew bailed out. Yes. Yes. Yeah. That's a, that's a, a interesting story. Now, whether there's any ghostly activity involved with it, I don't know, but I found the, the story so interesting. And, you know, to back it up, there was a, uh, B-17 on a, on a mission. And I think they got 
they were their plane was damaged during the bombing run and they lost a lot of speed about halfway uh back to base they decided to bail out and um the crew made it out safely but the weird part was that in this airfield in i think it was belgium the anti-aircraft crews were watching this uh, big lumbering four-engine bomber coming down for a perfect landing right over their positions, right onto the landing strip. And then it kind of went off. The only hint they had that there was a problem was that it went into the field and, and sort of crashed. And so the uh, – the air crews went over, rushed over to see what was wrong. They expected there to be injured pilots on board, but there was no one on board. Apparently, this B-17 had flown, you know, a few dozen, a few hundred miles and made a perfect landing at this air base in, in essentially the middle of nowhere. That's remarkable. So, yeah. <laughs> this th- is before autopilot. <laughs> right. No autopilot involved, no GPS. It just went on its own, you know. So I don't know whether that, there was some spirit on that plane guiding it or whether that's just another one of those weird World War II coincidences. All right. We'll take a time out. We'll come back. We'll talk about the supernatural on the high seas. Matt Swain, Haunted World War II, right here on The Conspiracy Show. Stay with us. Question everything. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. The British Empire and the French Republic linked together in their cause and in their need will defend to the death their native soil, aiding each other like good comrades to the utmost of their strength. We shall go on to the end. We shall fight in France. We shall fight on the seas and oceans. We shall fight... With growing confidence and growing strength in the air, we shall defend our island, whatever the cost may be. We shall fight on the beaches, we shall fight on the landing grounds, we shall fight in the fields and in the streets, we shall fight in the hills, we shall never surrender. And we are back with Matt Swain. Hunted World War II, soldier spirits, ghost planes, and strange synchronicities. Uh, before we get to the supernatural on the high seas, let's stick with the uh, the ghost planes for a little bit if we can. Now, are there actual planes that were obviously in service during the war that, that people still see flying around? Yeah, absolutely. That is uh, the ghost planes. Uh, actually, these stories continue to filter out, especially from the U.K., uh, even today, I think some of the, the ones I used in the book were uh, from the early 2000s to mid-2000s. And as I recall, as I was just getting ready to go to press, they were having uh, – there was another uh, ghost plane flap, if, if I can use that pun. But uh, the one in particular that uh, really gripped me was, was occurred over what's called Dark Peak – and Dark Peak, the, the background from that, from what I gather, is that it's an area with considerable 
uh, air traffic, particularly in World War II, and there were a lot of crashes during World War II and, and even afterwards to such an extent that the Dark Peak gets this uh, moniker of, of the UK's Bermuda Triangle. So this, uh, the, there were several incidences and again, they're, they're almost like, um, a series of these sightings. But in one case, uh, a couple was driving down the, the highway. I think it was the A6 highway in the UK and, uh, they looked out the window and there was this huge four engine bomber that was flying so low that they thought it was definitely going to crash. And they uh, had the windows rolled down. It made no noise, which was a little mystifying for them. It passed over. They didn't see any crashes or anything like that. They immediately reported it to their uh, to the police, and the police and the emergency uh, officials also told them that they had had several reports of of this plane go- going over. So, you know, naturally, the, the skeptic side of me, you know, says, well, maybe there was an air show and there wasn't an air show at that time. And sometimes uh, you might think that they're mistaking modern aircraft with this with these World War Two aircrafts. But as I explain in a little bit, as I'll explain in a little bit, that didn't pan. That excuse didn't pan out either. And. Another uh, fact about this uh, this series of, of sightings is that the sightings occurred kind of all over this dark peak area, and it didn't resemble like any flight path, any straight line or even curved line that you would see uh, a, a uh, airplane take. Um, so all of these – and the other thing was that there was one um, – one of the, the witnesses to this – actually was worked uh, on an air base during World War II and knew the difference between, let's say, uh, a C-130 that's a modern plane than a, a Lancaster bomber. So you have all these debates going back and forth about really what's happening, but that's one of the areas that uh, is is haunted by these ghost planes. These are planes that shouldn't be in the sky, but but are at least these people are, are are claiming to see those. You know, you you just mentioned the Lancaster bomber, and it twigged in my memory uh, another story my father had told me. And uh, he came back from uh, Europe in 1946, and um, soon after was was dating my mom. They were married in '51, so this would have been in the early '50s. And at this time, they lived outside of our hometown in a little village, uh, Oakland, Ontario. And I remember him telling me the story. I had forgotten about it until you said Lancaster Bomber. Hmm. You're driving along this country road, and he sees out the windshield uh, this Lancaster Bomber flying over these farmers' fields very low to the ground. And, in fact, it flew over the road in front of him. And he just kind of watched it, but it didn't make wow. a sound. And then it was gone. And now, again, it's possible there were, you know, Lancaster bombers still around and in working order at that time. But, mm-hmm. uh, no, he, he just believed it was a hallucination. Um, but, well, yeah, go ahead. It, let me match you with one from my own, my own family. And, uh, this was probably, I was just a kid. I, I was probably 11 or 12 years old. And, um, 
my mom and dad used to wake up pretty early, five, six o'clock in the morning. I think this was a uh, early summer, maybe late summer morning, and they liked to take morning walks. And so they left the porch and they were going down the alley. And my mom told me that uh, they saw a plane that was huge. Now, you know, my dad was a World War II buff and he always claimed that he didn't think it was a World War II aircraft, but it was definitely a big airplane that was probably, uh, you know, 100, 200 feet off the ground, which is incredibly low. Uh, for where I live, which was in the, in town, you know, it wasn't like we were out in the country at all. And they said the plane flew over. They could see illumination from inside of the aircraft and it went over a field nearby, uh, a little football field near our house, banked into the sky and, and just disappeared without a sound. And my mom always claimed that that was the ghost plane. And that's one of the reasons why I was searching for some of these stories in the first place. And, you know, I was just lucky enough to f- uncover a few, uh, in the UK because during World War II, it, you know, England was essentially the aircraft carrier for allies, for the allied uh, troops. So uh, I figured if they were going to appear anywhere, they would appear in UK. And, and so, you know, I do find these stories not just in the UK, but in the United States uh, and also out west right after uh, Pearl Harbor. There's an, uh, an incident which some claim was uh, was a ghost plane. Oh, can you tell me anything more about that one? Well, there's there. There are two. There, there's one that right after uh, the attack on Pearl Harbor. In fact, it was so near the time of of uh, Pearl Harbor that the people in California didn't even know about the attack. This plane came over in considerable distress, and um, the the witnesses saw it. It was a American uh, World War II plane, fighter plane, flew over. Uh, they sent the fire crews out into the woods to try to find this, and they, they found nothing. And so that was always um, – they claim that there were a few uh, planes in the – well, they don't claim. There were a few planes uh, in the air, American aircraft uh, uh, fighter planes uh, in the air fighting the Japanese attack. Uh, and there was one crash in particular where a uh, an American pilot – um, died during this uh, attack on on the Japanese fighter plane. I think it was shot down. And the story that came around this was that this was somehow related to that that um, that crash during Pearl Harbor. However, you know, Pearl Harbor's a thousand, two thousand miles away from where this incident occurred. And then there's another one. I think a year later, where. A plane was flying in, was picked up on radar. They sent out escorts to see what was, whether it was a friendly aircraft or whether it was a uh, Japanese aircraft. Uh, they saw that it was a friendly aircraft, uh, and the uh, escorts followed it into California, where it actually did crash. They could, never found the pilot in the in the plane, uh, and they also noticed that uh, the carriage had been ripped off of the 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 wheels had been ripped off of the bottom of the plane uh, and it was actually flying in without wheels. So how the plane even got airborne, because there were a few, uh, a few 
excuses or a few reasons that were passed around that perhaps this pilot was crash landed on an island and fixed the plane to get it in flight, but there would have been no way for that to happen. So there were, there were several of those types of ghost plane incidences and, and how they, uh, relate to the entire effort there is, is kind of a mystery. Uh, I'm trying to remember the gentleman's name, but years ago I spoke with he was an American who was living in Russia, and he had he had gone to work for the Kodak uh, Eastman Kodak Company in, I believe, Moscow. Mm. Retired there and uh, decided to to live on there, and um, he he wrote a story that he says was related to him by someone who was present in at Thule Air Force Base uh, in Greenland, uh, and that this had happened sometime in the 80s or 90s. Details are getting a little sketchy, mm-hmm. um, but there was a, um, a a World War II vintage bomber, uh, and it was called Kingbird Fifty, and it was uh, back in the forties. It was approaching Thule Air Force Base in this in a winter storm, and it went off radar and vanished. Never heard from mm. again until supposedly the 1980s or 90s and they, they're getting uh, at Thule Air Force Base they're getting a distress call on a strange on a sideband on the radio that's rarely ever used and it identified itself as King Bird 50 and hmm. supposedly this bomber it made a crash landing in green out in Greenland they sent out a search party and they found this plane and the crew on board frozen to death, uh, perfectly preserved, and of course everything was locked down, it was all hush-hush. Uh, they supposedly took this plane apart, shipped it back to the uh, the United States, and no one was supposed to say anything, but someone at Thule Air Force Base leaked this remarkable story to wow. this, this gentleman uh, in Moscow who told me about it. It's, it could, you know, it could be apocryphal, whether it is or not, I don't know, but it was one hell of a yarn, I'll tell you that. Yeah, that's fascinating. And there's, there's also this, um, uh, one of the suggestions was that somehow people, uh, are conflating both of those accounts. So in other words, there was this strange crash landing the year after Pearl Harbor that the people then, uh, morphed into this more of a ghost lore story about this ghost plane that flew over and then disappeared. So you do have some of that, that, that to me makes it a little more fascinating. Uh, so how these things can kind of morph in the imagination. We were going to talk about the supernatural on the high seas and, um, obviously, uh, a lot of haunted naval vessels. Uh, I don't know if this is in the book, but it was a troop carrier that's now, I think, stationed is it off Long Beach or Los Angeles somewhere, Santa Monica, the Queen Mary? Mm-hmm. It's supposedly one of the most haunted locations in the United States. Do you talk about the Queen Mary in, in your book? I, I left that one out because th- there are some stories that relate to World War II, but I wasn't sure how much that it would relate to World War II. So, you know, I made that decision to leave that out. And, and as a matter of fact, I had so many other uh, ghost stories from the the fighting ships themselves. So that's one of the reasons. But I, I have heard about it, and I've heard, you know, I think a few people have said that it's, as you mentioned, the, the most haunted spot in the United States. 
All right, we'll uh, we will get to supernatural on the high seas. We'll talk about the USS Yorktown and the Hornet and the Lexington. When we come back, Matt Swain, my guest, the author of Haunted World War II, back in a moment. <laughs> 